Good morning. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm the pastor here at Eastern Shore Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. You can learn more about our church by visiting our website, www.myesbc.net. Of course, if you would like to visit us on a Sunday morning, you'll see that we have life group classes or Sunday school classes that start at 9 a.m. And our service starts every Sunday at 1010 a.m. Come by and see us. God bless you. And I hope that you are motivated to look more like Jesus through today's podcast. If you want to, you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And this morning, I want to start with a question. Is your faith compelling or is it crushing you? Is your faith compelling or is it crushing you? Um, this morning, I want to ask another question. What gets you moving? What gets you going? What, what wakes you up in the morning? Why, why do you say, man, I can't wait to hit the alarm clock, put my feet on the floor, and get going with this day? What is your motivation for activity each and every day? Uh, the past several months, I've been going to the gym. Uh, I, I used to go to the gym when I was a lot younger and thinner. It's a little bit harder when you're older and overweight. Uh, but I've been going to the gym now since January. And, and I tell you, one of the primary motivations for me going is the end. <laughs> I go so it can be done and over with. And maybe that's a, a bit of a negative reason to go. But nevertheless, it is a reason to be there. And it is a reason uh, to get moving. Uh, maybe... You wish that there are times that you could sleep longer. Maybe you wish there were moments when, that you could have more to yourself. Maybe time away from the kids. Maybe time away from your spouse. But yet, here you are doing what you do. You're working. You're up. You're at them. This morning, why are you at church? Why did you come here today? Was it for the, for the phenomenal preaching? Of course. That has to be it. Maybe it's for the music. Maybe you're youth and you were scheduled to sing here this morning. Maybe it's because there's a bit of a social structure here at church. You, you have friendships here. It was really cool. Just last week, we had a big group of adults uh, that, that have long-standing, long-running friendships with another, one another, and they went to Alaska together. How cool is that? Of course, there's a social atmosphere here. Uh, but maybe you came for the Bible study. Maybe you came for your life group class. But what got you here? Maybe you come to church because you kind of feel like it's something you got to do. Uh, your mom and dad raised you to come to church. From, from when you were this big, it was just something that was ingrained in you. It's, a, it's perfunctory in nature. It's a duty, if you will, uh, that you have to be here. But maybe, just maybe, you have arrived here today and there's something that's missing. Maybe there's a, a missing spark, a, a missing joy, a missing happiness that maybe one time in your life you had, but for whatever reason is no longer existent, and yet you're just here going through the motions. There was a faith that once excited you, and yet the faith that you still hold on to and cling to doesn't really get you motivated any longer. You're just here so this morning, again, that question is very important. Is your faith compelling you? Is it compelling you to action? Is it pushing you? Is it motivating you to, do, to, be, uh, to be a sound and act and think more like Christ? Or is it just something that's wrapped around your neck? A millstone, if you will. Well, this morning, before we read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, 
I want to give a little bit of a, a historical context to, to what we're about to read. Because this morning we're going to meet a gentleman, a Samaritan, who is motivated out of love. And doing something that other people refuse to do. And Jesus tells a story of a man. We don't know anything about the man outside of the fact that he was a man. He was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Probably he was returning home after a period of time of worshiping there in the temple. And by the way, when Scripture says that this man was going down, I mean, he literally means he was going down. Uh, the, the, there was a, a well, 3,300-foot elevation drop from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, and it was a, a large, steeping incline. There was lots of opportunities for bandits and robbers to hide along the way. It was a, it was a mountainous exchange, and there would have been many opportunities to be hurt or to fall or to, to suffer some type of mechanical injury, and yet there were opportunities clearly, as we see here, uh, where people could be robbed and hurt. And of course, this man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he was attacked, he was robbed, he was beaten, he was stripped naked and left for dead. That's a pretty sad state of affairs. And there were two men, a priest and a Levite, who passed on the other side of the road. And the Levite, he took a good first look at this man who had been stripped, beaten, robbed, and left for dead. And of course, we know that not only did the Levite stop, but we also know that the priest stopped as well. And yet, they didn't stop to actually help the man along the way. And the question begs, why? Why didn't they stop? Why didn't they stop to help this man who was beaten, robbed, naked, left for dead, bleeding? Why didn't they do something to help this guy out. Well, there's probably several different reasons. They were probably worried about being attacked themselves. Maybe if they stopped and helped this man, maybe the robbers were still in the area and they could have been attacked. Or maybe they were worried that they would become ceremonially unclean by stopping to touch a man who was bleeding. By the way, in Levitical law, if you were to, to stop and touch a dead body or if you were to stop and help someone that was bleeding, uh, you would be ceremonially unclean. Remember, these men were going to Jerusalem to worship. And they didn't want to sully themselves. They didn't want to dirty themselves by helping someone else out. Because if they got to Jerusalem, they would have to go through all types of ritual cleansing before they could go into the temple. Neither one of these men stopped to help. They didn't stop to ask. They didn't do anything. And then all of a sudden, a Samaritan comes along, and Jesus tells us that the Samaritan's heart was filled with pity. He applies first aid as uh, was available in the day. He bandages, and he uses wine and olive oil. He puts the man on his own animal to ride, and he begins to walk. He takes the man to a, an inn that was nearby. He stays with him overnight, pays for his care, and guarantees any future expenses would be paid by him to the innkeeper so this man would be taken care of medically. And to get the full impact of the story, it's helpful to remember that both the priest and the Levite, they were officials involved with worship in the Jerusalem temple. They would have known the law, and they might have been expected to help the man in need, especially presuming that the member, this man, was a member of, his, of their own Jewish community. 
The Samaritan, however, was quite the outsider. He would have been the person least expected to help, and yet the person least expected to help did the most. So this morning, let's read from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law, and how do you read it? Verse 27, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, asked Jesus, Who's my neighbor? It's a good question, by the way. A good question. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and he saw him, and he passed on by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? In verse 37, he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This morning I want to offer you three very brief lessons from Jesus' parable, the first comes in Roman numeral one. We see love, love's clarification. We have a clarification of what love really looks like. What love really looks like. In verse 29, but he said, desiring to justify himself, and he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? A very good question. Who is my neighbor? Loving God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength and all my mind, check. Got that, Jesus? I fully understand what you're talking about. Then Jesus adds one more thing. You will love your neighbor. You'll love your neighbor. And Jesus, by the way, is pulling this added, uh, this added short sentence from Leviticus 19 verse 18. Listen to what Levitical law says. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, this question is not really a question to find out who his neighbor is. You see, we, we sometimes ask things with actual other meanings. The question, who is my neighbor, is not really asking, or excuse me, is really asking, who do I not have to love? See, this man is asking a question, but he means something different. Jesus, who is my neighbor? And what he's really saying is, Jesus, are there people that I don't have to love? Are there people that I really don't have to love. Who is my neighbor equals to who don't I have to show affinity, affection, love? That is what he really wants to know. Just how far does my love have to extend and where can my love end is exactly what this man is asking. The word that Jesus uses for neighbor in Luke is markedly different, by the way, from the word being used for neighbor in Leviticus. 
The word for neighbor in Leviticus means friend, a companion, someone that shares an intimate relationship with you. Uh, Essentially this, when you talk about the Levitical call to love your neighbor, you can look to your left and to your right on your pew, and that's what's being commanded. We should love one another. Those of us that have commonality, those of us that share uh, a similar uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, those of us that share similar uh, religious views, it's easy to love one another. We are to love our neighbor. The person on your left and in your right, that's your neighbor according to Levitical law. And by the way, we should love one another. We're in the same church. Amen? Of course. We're the same body of believers. We ought to love one another. If we don't love one another, then we've got a real problem. But Jesus in Luke gives another definition of the word neighbor, which drives drives this lawyer probably kind of crazy. The lawyer was working from an Old Testament meaning, and Jesus gives him a new meaning, an expanded meaning. The Greek word being used by Jesus for neighbor means any person. And where two are concerned, the other person always has the consideration above ourselves. It means fellow man. According to Christ, any other man, irrespective of nation or religion with whom we live, we now choose to see as a neighbor. Jesus broadens this idea of what a neighbor really can be. He doesn't just say, yes, the person that's seen on your pew with you certainly is your neighbor. But guess what? Now, when I say neighbor, I mean a way bigger definition. So what's the implication of Christ changing the words around This means that we are to love those that we deem unlovable. This means that that those we deem to have an abominable lifestyle, we are to love them. This means that those who hold a different religion than us, we are to love them too. We are to love the the refugee, the homeless, the diseased, those that are ethnically different than us, even those that might attack us and do us harm. Friend, we got to love them. Our neighbor is not just the person who comes to church with us or who literally is our next door neighbor. Our neighbor is potentially anyone on the planet that we come in contact with. And by the way, I don't mean to say that we love our neighbor by sacrificing biblical truth. I believe that one of the greatest ways that we can love our neighbor is to tell them biblical truth. We stand on the foundations of God's word. We don't sacrifice truth so that we can love someone else. That's what our culture says, and that's all a farce. I think we all are mature enough to know that. But loving our neighbor means that we do good to others for the cause of Christ. We act like saints, loving people, ministering to the needs of In the name of Christ, being a good neighbor means being Jesus in actions and in words. James chapter 2 verse 8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. You are doing well. Being kind, being compassionate to people that look, sound, act, believe differently than me or you is being Jesus. To them and we are doing well. Another lesson we have love's clarification in verse 29, but then we come to verse 33 and we have love's compassion. Love's compassion. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. 
So we've heard the story this morning, the parable of the man who falls into the hands of evil men. He's beaten, he's stripped, he's robbed, he's left for dead. And that's a a fairly horrible story, a sad country song. And thankfully, religious people are seen moving his way. Can't you imagine this guy laying on the road and he sees a priest and then he sees a Levite and they're coming the opposite way and he's probably thinking to himself, thank you, thank you. Religious people, people that are about God's work, they see me, surely they'll see me. I'm naked after all, I'm bleeding, I'm half dead as the scripture says. Surely these deep religious people, people that know better, people that are called to serve, called to help, they'll see me and they will help me. And yet the priest and the Levite moved on. Can you imagine this guy's disappointment? Two people, two religious people, and neither one stopped. And I began to wonder why. Why do these religious people not stop to give aid? I think there's a a handful of reasons. One, I think, is religion. Religion. One reason that the priest and Levite passed up on this man on the side of the road was because of their religion. They were both Jews who were headed to Jerusalem to worship. I can just picture them now saying to themselves, if we touch him, we'll become ceremonially unclean. And they missed the whole point of what worship really is. They were like the Pharisees who took every bit of the law to themselves and they showed zero grace when grace was demanded. They obeyed the law to its letter and they looked down on anyone who saw the principle of the law as more important. We as Christians sometimes get caught up in trying to meet the commands We get so caught up in trying to to meet the commands that we miss the principles that Jesus taught. Another reason that I believe that these men probably didn't stop was not only because of their religion, but also because of prejudice. I think they were just prejudiced. Prejudice. I believe that there was and is a lot of racism within religious people. I think there was a lot of racism back in those days. I think there's still a lot of racism today. I mean, just look around. You can see it. How often do we see people of a different race in our churches these days? Most churches are still segregated. Is it their fault? Is it their fault that they don't come here? Or is it our fault that we don't allow them to come here? And when I say them and they, I'm just talking about the church in general. I tend to think it's more us because we don't always show the love of Christ to people that are different than us I say that by the way I've grown up in Baptist churches my whole life my whole life I've been a Southern Baptist my whole life and so I feel like I can say this somewhat educated we have to be more open we have to be more willing to see past skin color and we have to be more willing to see the person that's created in God's image that Jesus Christ died for In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi wrote that during the days when he was a student that he read the Gospels, and he seriously, this is true, that Mahatma Gandhi, he seriously considered converting to Christianity when he was younger. And he believed that the teachings of Jesus, that he could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. And so on one Sunday, 
he decided to attend a service at a nearby church and talk to a minister about becoming a believer. This is a true story. And when he entered the sanctuary, however, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go worship with his own people. And Gandhi left the church and never returned. And this is what a direct quote from his autobiography. He says, if Christians have caste differences also, he said, I might as well remain a Hindu. If Christians have caste, if people are looked at as differently as some are better than others, I might as well just stay a Hindu. What's the difference? That usher's prejudice not only betrayed Jesus, but also turned a person away from trusting Christ as his Savior. Friend, small decisions that we make as believers can have weighty eternal outcomes. And we have to be careful with how we treat those that we deem as outsiders. Friends, don't you realize that we were all outsiders? (laughs) At one point in our life, every single person in this room, including the guy behind the pulpit, was an outsider. And thankfully, Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, through his blood, adopted me into a family that I did not belong to. Gave me a family, gave me an inheritance, gave me a home that I didn't earn. And that was every single one of us in this room. Not only did they have a religion problem, they had a prejudice problem, but I also believe they just had a sheer lack of compassion problem. A sheer lack of compassion problem. Their hearts, these men, these religious men, they had allowed their hearts to grow stony, cold, and hard. And they weren't tender anymore. They had a lack of compassion. These men had a compassion problem I know that some people are more compassionate than others, but I think that when you come across a man who's been stripped naked, beaten, bleeding, and dying on the road, and you don't stop, there's a real problem there. I'll be honest with you. I struggle with thoughtfulness. I really do. My brother is a good bit more thoughtful than I am. He tends to remember his birthdays, and and he does better at stuff like that than I do. I really have to force myself to try to remember to be thoughtful, to be compassionate, So I get it. Not everybody has the gift of compassion. However, when a situation like this arises, when you see a person in need and you have within your power to bless that person, to be Jesus to that person, and you choose not to out of some greedy condition of your heart or because your heart is too stone cold, there's a problem there. The Greek word, by the way, that Jesus uses for compassion, it's the same word for pity, but it's actually a medical word. It means to feel something within your bowels. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says that this man had compassion, this Samaritan had compassion on this man who was beaten, robbed, naked, and left for dead, that he felt this man's pain. He felt this man's suffering in such a a real way that it affected his internal organs. When's the last time we felt that for someone? He stopped, he helped. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, listen to Paul's words. Let each of you not only look out to your own interest, but what? To the interest of others. Placing someone else's needs above your own. Now, I will say that that all sounds well and good. We have the clarification of what love is. We have the compassionate aspect here of of one man stopping to help another man. Of course, we would probably all agree that yes, we should always put someone else's needs above our others. But there's, 
The reason why we don't is because of this third point. There's always a cost. There's always a cost to love. And most people will agree that those are nice sentiments, but they will pump the brakes when they actually have to do something because it will often cost them something. Listen to what it says in verse 33 and 35. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on olive and wine. So right here, just in the very first couple of verses, we have this man giving up at least two aspects. We see him sacrificing his time. He stops. He was on his way, right? And he stops doing whatever it was he was going to do. He stops. And he sees this man. So he's sacrificing time. Now he's sacrificing his own materialism. He says, I'm going to give this man wine and oil. I'm going to bandage him. I'm going to help him. And then he goes on. Then he sets him on his own animal and he brought him to an end to take care of him. So now he's given up his time. He's given up his resources. Now he's given up his comfort for this man. A 17-mile walk, remember? A 3,300 drop in elevation. It's mountainous. It's rocky. And now this man is saying, you know what? Now I'm going to get off of the thing that gives me comfort going down this long road. And now I'm going to give this away to someone else. I'm going to give up my comfort level so this person can be more comfortable than me. And then the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now he's giving up his finances for this man. That's a lot of sacrifice. There's always a cost to showing compassion for someone else. And the cost is generally high. Love is always going to cost us our time. Love may cost us our financial resources. The call to love may mean giving up a, a career or a pursuit of a, in, in pursuit of a more noble call. The call to love may mean that we deal with people that make us feel uncomfortable, that make us even feel unsafe. And Jesus calls his followers to have a willingness to cross social barriers. This Samaritan didn't consider the religious implications. He did not act. He did not act or not act because of racial issues. There was no national barrier keeping him from acting. Think of the Samaritan when he took great risks by stopping to help. What if the robbers had come <coughs> and attacked him? By the way, the path that this Samaritan was walking, this path was called the way of blood. It was a common path that people didn't like to take simply because of this one story. <coughs> so Christians are called to take risks, but how do we know people won't take advantage of our generosity? How do we know that this Samaritan that his generosity won't be taken advantage of. I hear people say this all the time. Well, if I'm generous, they may just take my money and, and they, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not just gonna give them money or I'm not just gonna help them because of this or because of that. Friend, where's your faith in God? Can't you just turn that person over to the Lord and say, you know what, Lord, maybe you're not trying to, to do something for them, but maybe instead you're trying to teach me to be a more generous person. After all, the resources that I may give to this person, they don't belong to me, they belong to you. And if they misuse those resources, they didn't misuse it because of me, they misuse it because of themselves. Where's your generosity? Where's your faith? 
A Christian needs a willingness to set aside busy schedules. The Samaritan was on a journey, but he took time to stop and care for the man. By the way, no one knows us more than me. I have a set routine generally that I come in and try to do in the church, and man, I'll have people stop in, and I'll always take these pop-in, these pop-in appointments as God reminded me that, you know what, people are more important than the routine and the schedule that I make for myself. It's more important to be with people, more important to love people, more important to visit people than it is to maintain the schedule that I make for myself. And I have to thank the Lord. Lord, thank you for sending this person to remind me of that today. Shake my schedule up, Lord. A Christian needs a willingness to make sacrifices. The Samaritan sacrificed more than just time and energy and his own provisions. He even offered an open-ended agreement to provide and keep help coming. Jesus taught his disciples to be willing to make sacrifices. We as Christians need to do likewise, to make sacrifices so that we can show love, so that we can show compassion, so that we can determine for ourselves, right? The Lord has brought a neighbor into my universe. And what a joy it is to be able to help my neighbor, no matter who they are. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father God, we want to make it our goal to love others like Christ. Break down any barriers that might get in our way. Lord, break down any barriers in my life and in my heart, and in my mind that might prevent me from loving someone the way you've called me to love. Lord, thank you for the example, this parable of the Good Samaritan, which I have a feeling is probably a real story that Jesus plucked from history so that we could have a teachable moment. Thank you that this Good Samaritan saw past the bruises, the blood, the beaten. Lord, that he would want to help someone else. Father, I pray that for those of us that may be a bit jaded by our world, that, Lord, you would melt that stone-cold heart and that, Lord, you would instead implant a heart of tenderness in us, that we would see others and desire to help, to, to be on mission, Lord, to raise someone up so that they can see the beauty of our faith. Lord God, thank you again for this wonderful story, for how it's impacted my life and the lessons that it's taught me. And we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to today's podcast. And we hope to see you again on Sunday morning. Of course, you can also watch our services live on YouTube. Simply search Eastern Shore Baptist Church on YouTube. And at 10.05, our broadcast starts. We hope to see you soon. God bless you. And again, visit our website, www.myesbc.net. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.